motion picture screen explodes with unprecedented power as the two masters of imagination, Jules Verne and Walt Disney, join to bring you a shattering new experience in entertainment. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Carousel Project. Today we're going to be journeying 20,000 leagues under the sea, but first, my name is Josie Maida, and you can find me on all social platforms at Josie Maida. And I am Kate Killebrew. You can find me on all social platforms at Kate Killebrew. And I'm Adam. You can find me on all socials at Epcot Adam. Yeah, you can. All right. So today to kick off our episode, as you guys know, we like to do a fun fact or a question. I have terrible cramps and cravings today. So we're going with if you could eat anything from a Disney park right now, what would it be? Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> what do we eat? I don't, kn- I don't know. I feel like I want like something like cheesy and like fried chicken-y. Ooh. I haven't been to Disneyland in a long time, but I feel like it would be something from Disneyland. Adam, do you have something in mind? I mean, I have 10 things in mind, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. My, my, I think one of my favorite Disney snacks is... It has to be perfect, though, because churros are very hit or miss at Disneyland. But when you get a perfectly fresh and hot out of the oven churro, I don't think there's anything like it. That is a good one. I think I'm definitely in the mood for something savory. Oh, like I feel like if I've never been before, so I don't know why, but I feel like I would pick... Um, I would pick, I would pick, um, from the Jolly Holiday Bakery, the, the tomato soup and grilled cheese. That's exactly what I told Adam the other day that I have to try when I go next month. I've never had it, but the pictures look amazing. Or the fried chicken from the plaza. I have been craving fried chicken Mm -hmm. since yesterday. I think maybe that. Maybe I've heard that apparently the tomato soup at Disneyland is better than at Woody's. So that's why I'm excited to try to test the tomato soup. But um, I think if I could have anything to eat from a Disney park right now, I would probably want a Dole Whip swirl of... If they would let me do multiple swirls, I would want, like, pineapple, strawberry, and raspberry. But I could settle for just pineapple and raspberry. You would pick a Dole Whip? Yeah. The Dole Whip is no longer available at my local Menchie's, so I think that's why it's sitting on my heart now because I know I can't have it at my local mall anymore. So. I like Wait, the they lime. haven't brought it back in the last month since I was there? No. Bum, wow. Bum. Thanks for nothing, Menchie's. I would like the um, the <laughs> raspberry. Ooh, that was so loud. My my phone. The raspberry lime Dole Whip swirl is I my favorite. I still want to try that. I still want to try um, that. That's my favorite one, but that is that is not what I would eat right now. We're going to Polly well, next weekend to try yes, it. Yes, I will try it. Let's do this. Let's do it. Um, also, if we're just not snack-wise, pot roast and mashed potatoes from Liberty oh Tree always God. slaps. That's the yes. most savory, most delicious thing I could ever get in Disney. So not to be dramatic, but <laughs> Liberty Tree Tavern pot roast. Normally, I'm craving something sweet, but I'm not craving something sweet right now. But normally, speaking of Liberty Tree Tavern, that toffee I knew pudding you were going to say that. <laughs> is so good. <laughs> If we're doing like restaurants on Disney property, please take me to Boathouse oh, right now yeah. because the, bra- the bread we we need that bread and yeah. butter mm-hmm. and the fries like yep. just just All I'm ready. Uh, Next weekend we're chicken. doing it. I want fried chicken so bad. Maybe Renee will go get me some fried chicken. Okay, are we ready to dive into Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, which has no fried chicken in it? Yeah. Unfortunately, I say we dive in. We go dive for a scuba in. Dive. <laughs> okay, so I picked today's topic because I have a huge yep. love for Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Um, I developed a huge appreciation for the film while I was working at Club Thirty Three. That is all I will say. But if you know, you know. Um, and I so know. I, <laughs> um, and so I developed a huge love for um, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea while I was on the Club Thirty Three team here in Walt Disney World, and I had never seen the movie. So I've always wanted to watch the movie. I loved a bunch of the facts that I learned um, kind of like from the archives team about 20,000 Leagues just over the years. And so I felt like it'd be a really fun episode. And it pushed me to actually watch the movie. I'm just going to throw in a random tangent. Did you guys ever see like the kids musical version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? No. No. There's a song. Where? 
I'm about to look it up right now while we're here, but like I grew up watching this musical video, VHS, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and they sang a song called 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and I'm going to put a link to that song in the show notes for this episode so I can enlighten everybody. That's it. I'm ready right now. Let's watch this. (laughs) So I think what the craziest part about this movie and the story of it and everything is that this is based on an 1870s novel, not a 1970s, an 1870s novel, which always blows my mind. Um, Mm -hmm. So 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is by Jules Verne, who is like one of the most... I feel like he's like the most famous like science fiction writer and was so, so, so ahead of his time. And so I always knew I liked him because he's mentioned in um, Back to the Future, in episode three of Back to the Future, when Doc Brown says it's his favorite author. Um, (laughs) And Disney, Walt Disney had an appreciation too, because that's how we got 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, So I like old movies, but I can understand why other people think they're boring, you know, or don't like stand the test of time. And I thought 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was great. Like, it had a really good storyline, and the set of the Nautilus, which, you know, we'll talk more about what the Nautilus is, was absolutely beautiful. So if you haven't watched the movie before, it is a really, really good movie. Um, I watched it while I was doing my research, so I didn't get to give it my full attention, and I, like, already want to watch it again so I can kind of just give it my full attention. This is probably a stupid question, but is it on Disney Plus? It is on Disney Plus. Oh, good. I watched it. Okay, perfect. Well, then I'll have to watch it there. Well, the kids' version was Crayola Kids Adventure, colon, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and it came out in 1997. So anyway, I'll put a link to the song, (laughs) but that's what's in my head. Do you want to give us a taste of that, Caitlin? (laughs) No. I'll skip the singing for this episode. This is not Dream Street? Okay. This is not Dream Street. Um, So the movie was released on December 23rd, 1954, and actually was, um, I don't know if they were like technically, would you call it a remake, but there was um, a movie of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea made in 1916. Like A silent film, yeah. Wow. Crazy. Silent films sound so boring. I've never watched one, but that sounds awful. <laughs> I could not think of a worse punishment. Um, and so, what? That sounds terrible. Like you just watch them like running around? Well, they didn't have sound back then in, in 1913 for film. I mean, uh, Steamboat Willie was the first cartoon with sound. Right. And he didn't come out until 1928. So, another 15 years. <laughs> See, Adam. I'm doing your job for you. You don't even have to add any background music there. I did yeah, it for wh- you. Wh- why am I even here? I'm just going to go, guys. See you later. <laughs> Take care. Bye. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> this is the last time that I will be reaching out and recording an episode. I thought you had five mm. minutes. Anyways. It's exhausting. <laughs> Anyways. Um, I'm well, dying. This was also the not only the first Disney film, but one of the first films ever to be shot in CinemaScope, and it was um, shot with color by Technicolor. So yeah, this movie was a big deal. It cost a lot of money. So I heard that it cost nine million dollars at the time. I don't know if someone like where I was researching had already ingested it for inflatement. You know what I mean? In- inflation. inflation. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I said inflatement. What is? You said nine million in. Uh, 1954? Yes, but I don't know if the... I don't know if where I was doing my research, if they had already adjusted for inflation. Because $9 million sounds like a lot of money. Yeah, I think I saw $5 million originally, and then I saw $9 million somewhere else. Let me see if I can find it. $9 million converted to today's money from 1954 to 2021 is $91 and change, so... Jeez, that's but I mean, look at crazy. look at these movies today. You know, some actors and actresses make like you know thirty million dollars or something just for well, one. This movie. was a very expensive movie to make. Oh. So Walt Disney purchased the front film rights in 1951. Yes, Kate. Oh, I was just gonna say the original budget for the film was five million. So oh, maybe so maybe when they so were maybe. done, they got to nine million because well, I know that apparently the last scene, the scene with the squid, had to be reshot. Yes. It was an extra two hundred and twenty thousand, I think they said. Yeah, so the the scene with the squid, we'll get into. But yeah, yes, sorry. that was a, that was a really high. How dare you? <laughs> that was a really high additional cost. Um, 
So Walt Disney purchased the film rights in 1951. Um, they shot in Jamaica and they also shot in the Bahamas. And then they also had like a water tank, you know, on like the sets where they were shooting. Um, and it was very expensive. Like if you look at this movie, I was thinking about it through that lens and I was like, holy crap, I feel like this would be expensive to shoot today because again, it's a lot of like in the water and boats destroying other boats and this like beautiful high-tech submarine with like all this metal and well, this ornate and, organ and so and they had to build soundstage three on the back lot for this movie because they needed the massive indoor tank for like those scenes um on the water yeah. and stuff so um Crazy. which would later be used for muppet vision 3d for as it should <laughs> be for, for piggy's uh big song number so see exactly if they had known that back then Little? oh my god oh my god so it was super so i think nine i mean it said at times because of how complicated production was there was over 400 people on the crew at once and then as kate talked about so originally the squid scene was shot on like a calm ocean during like dusk like it was still kind of light out and it just didn't come across as like epic as it needed to. And so I believe, and I hope I'm not misspeaking because this would be something that I learned, you know, through my years with Disney and through my years of learning about Disney. I don't have like the actual research in front of me, but I believe it went all the way up to Walt who was like, we need to reshoot this like at night and it needs to be a rough sea and it needs to be like a lot more intense. And so obviously those are things that are going to cost a lot more money and are going to be more difficult to shoot. Um, so super, super, super expensive, but it paid off. The movie won, um, you know, awards at the Academy Awards. It won best art director, best special effects. It was nominated for best film editing. Um, and it just, was a huge, huge success, um, which was really important because the studio had put so much money into this film that it really did um, represent a significant risk yeah. for the company should it have flopped. Well, and I remember um, I saw some like headlines and stuff where people were basically saying, Dis- you know, Walt Disney isn't just an animation, you know, cartoon movie guy like by putting out this it really put him on the map for other types of films even though he had put out he'd been working on those films over in England um for the few years before that I think like you said the squid scene and just all of the details they put into this film was a really big deal um this Mm -hmm. was also the first full-length feature to be distributed by Buena Vista Distributions so um that was that was another first There were a lot of firsts in this movie. So another thing I wanted to note about the design of the movie before I jump into one of my favorite firsts to talk about, um, the Nautilus was designed by Harper Goff. Yes. So he helped with huge, he's a big name in Disney. Mm -hmm. We love Harper Goff here. Yeah, he was posthumously named a Disney legend, um, but he he helped design the set for Willy Wonka. Like the set of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and the set of Willy Wonka, like those are two pretty iconic movies. And I really was surprised by how beautiful when you watch the movie, the interior of the Nautilus is is beautifully done. Like it it really looks like something where you're like, wow, I would want to be there. I would want to go there. Um, And so he was a huge contributor at Disneyland. And if you've ever been to Tom Sawyer Island, um, Harper's Mill, the big wheel that you see, that's named after Harper Golf. I love that. Well, and, you know, Walt wanted them to stick with more of the design that is described in the book of how the Nautilus should look, but... um, it ended up being Harper Goff who pushed for it to have more of the look where it looked like a cross between a shark and an alligator. It had rough edges to kind of simulate. It looks very um, steampunk. Yeah, it's a steampunk vibe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Walt wanted something more sleek, like what's described in the book, and Harper really fought for that design. And now that version of the Nautilus is what's known, you know, for, for the term of the Nautilus because it made such an impact from that film. So, yeah, that's 100% what I picture. Also, you can get a Nautilus, and I have it just because of my love for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea at the um, Trader Sam's Tiki Bar. You can get a drink in the Nautilus. It's like $50, but it's a really cool tiki mug. Yes, it is one I of like, my favorite things someday. I own. Yes, we should go when you guys come. We should. 
Don't tempt me with a good time. <laughs> it's a really cool cup. I Says love the it. Drinker. I seriously, I don't drink either. That's why I was like, Ugh. I was like, I guess I'm gonna pay the fifty dollars. I asked them. I was like, can I just buy the glass, like, and not buy the drink? And they were like, no. no. So yeah. I was like, well, in that case, they were like, we can. They were like, you can pay I'll for drink it. I'll bring the drink, and I was like, whatever, <laughs> just bring it at that point. Uh, one of my favorite things about this movie that I like to talk about, and again, so this is something that I learned about while I like my time through like obviously again working for Disney being a Disney fan hearing like the folklore and the myths that you hear and when I was looking up dates I was like I don't know if this is true because of the dates but it kind of makes sense that it would be true I don't know I'm not going to tell you that this is a million percent true but I'm pretty sure that I got this information originally from like archives information so it's a fun story so we're going to say it and if it's not true how would they know? Um, no, I'm kidding. We always try to do our best research over here. So basically, Davy Crockett was released on December 15th, 1954, the first episode. And so the series and then the movie that came after it were majorly successful. Majorly, majorly, majorly successful for the Walt Disney Company. Fess Parker ended up spending a lot of his time with the Walt Disney Company, and that was his first role. Um, and so this is what really brought Davy Crockett to like mainstream media again like it's because of Walt Disney that we still know his name to this Mm -hmm. day you know like he was kind of popular for a while and then kind of went away but Walt had always had a love for him and so they had this show um and so kids were obsessed with Davy Crockett like crazy like picture like I don't know what were some crazes that we had as kids? Like huge, huge. Like for me, I know well, like, like Tamagotchi. Frozen. When Frozen came Brad out, stuff. everybody yes, was obsessed like, with Frozen stuff. Beanie yeah. babies. Beanie yes, babies. Beanie, yeah. Like huge, huge, huge. So in the show, he wears a raccoon skin cap. And so when the show came out, there was this huge demand for like frontier themed toys, specifically like Davy Crockett toys and the cap. So as far as the story goes that I know, and the reason that I'm saying it does kind of make sense is because um, according to the Smithsonian, at the height of the Crockett mania, raccoon skin caps were selling at a rate of 5000 per day. And so the only thing that makes me doubt this story is the timeline, but it kind of still does make sense. So again, remember, Davy Crockett was released on December 15th, 1954, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was released, you know, only a week or so later on December 23rd, 1954. Um, and so again, the way I heard the story go was that the, the commotion for these caps was so crazy that Disney basically had to like, you know, everybody was trying to get their hands on making these caps. And then I think Disney tried to get into it and they were having just like whatever suppliers they could get Mm -hmm. to make these caps to try to, you know, make some money and to provide for the demand that was in the marketplace. And so again, the Smithsonian said at the height of Crockett mania, 5,000 of these hats were selling per day, which is huge. So the story was that 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, because of this, was the first movie to have a um to have a launch of merchandise happen at the same time as the movie came out. And so I don't know if that means the same thing as we would think today where it would be a few days earlier or it would be like on the exact same day. Um but the story I was told that was because of that Crockett mania, it was more succinct than it ever had been before and they really were like okay, we're going to wisen up and we know that we think this is going to be a popular movie, so we're going to have some merchandise ready. Um for this movie. And so I ha- I couldn't find any pictures of original merchandise from the 1950s, you know, online, but I have seen them in person. I've seen the pieces from seeing different um, archives collections through, you know, my time being a Disney fan. So yeah, that was it. I, again, I tried to find pictures for you guys online of this merchandise, but I remember like a board game, um, and a couple other like little things like that. But basically it let Disney know like, okay, if there's going to be a big movie or a big show that we think is going to do well, we need to, you know, think about doing merchandise at the same time because the market is there and children and people want these things. And we think about how that's trickled down throughout the company today because now there's merchandise for everything all the time. And that really started with this combination of um, of Davy Crockett and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Love that. Yeah, you see today, like, you know, before Frozen 2 came out, we had 
merchandise for every character, every, you know, even new characters that we haven't seen oh, the movie all before. The time. They I already remember, had, you know, the merchandise on the shelves. Yeah, before Raya. It's crazy. Before Raya and the Last Dragon came out, I remember seeing like the little, her little Tuck, Tuck I think his yeah. name is, um, like a plushie of him. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cute. But like, I don't even know this character yet. And right. it's so that's cute and I want to buy it. Even right now, like the 50th anniversary doesn't start till October 1st and it's already the, the merchandise is already out. out. Yeah. Yep. Well, um, I, I figured we were going to touch back on this from like our original Disneyland episode, but um, they had the episode of op- that had the episode Operation Undersea on the Disneyland show, which was basically just that glorified commercial for the 20,000 Leagues movie. It was um, the seventh episode of the series and it aired on December 8th, 1954. Um, and it was, it just gave people a behind the scenes look at the film and, um, the footage was later reused for, um, something called Pacifically Peaking that was on, um, Wonderful World of Color in the future too. But, um, I thought back to when we talked about, you know, the 20,000 Leagues episode of the Disneyland show and how Walt was like, I'm going to use this to you know, get people hyped for my new movie too and my new theme park all at the same time because this was all within the same year um, that he was doing that Disneyland show. I remember the criticism was that people said that it was basically like an (laughs) hour-long commercial for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But people watched it and people were excited for it. And again, it like built that excitement. That was, I felt like Disney back in the day was really good at kind of that more natural kind of marketing you know because Mikey did that stuff too he did people that for were really said guys i was waiting for mikey to come up in this episode okay i was Sorry. waiting i was it waiting it only took 23 minutes <laughs> because that might be well, a i was like i said i was like i don't think he's gonna come up in today's episode oh, but but we we will find I a heard, way and this is devastating this is devastating no. news okay <laughs> i heard just from like random people like talking about our podcast and talking about how I want to meet him have said that he's mean. I mean, I don't think, I don't think he's the nicest guy on the planet. I mean, he, he had to get stuff done in my mind. Have you seen some of his interviews where he talked about situations? He has kind of an aggressive way of talking from time to time, but I mean, he had a lot on his plate. No, but I mean, like I heard like since then, like just like, well, Mikey, general. the Mikey we look up to is not the same Mikey that exists today, in in my opinion. You know, he's moved on from Disney. He, he's he got other things going on, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess he's probably mean. I don't know. The Mikey that exists today is the one that uh, took away the people mover for Rocket Rods. <laughs> the Mikey that exists is the one that exists in my mind's eye who can do no wrong and is so exactly. nice. And we are going to get coffee together at the Grand Floridian as if yes. I was Fozzie Bear and his mom. And he <laughs> he is he is himself as Michael Eisner. Um, well, but wait, and it's going to be glorious and amazing. Remember our friend Taylor? She told us about the time she was in an elevator with him during the 25th anniversary. She was a little girl. It was her and her mom. And he got he was in the elevator. And he apparently he was really nice then. So I think it just, you know, he. I feel like everybody's mean from time to time. So... We'll have to wait till we meet him and then we can make our decision, you know, which we will. We will meet him. Um, So I think this is a great place to move over. Well, first, I want to talk a little bit more. It was really hard to find advertisements, which, as you know, we talk a lot about the marketing of the magic and the marketing of things. And sometimes it's hard. Like we pick topics based on what we love and we give you guys as much of the marketing as we can. But sometimes when we pick these far back topics, it's a little difficult. Um, But for me, what really made me want to pick this episode is that story about the toys because I was able to see those toys. And I was told, um, you know, when I saw them from the archives that they were the first time that merchandise was released with the film and that it was this huge deal. I think there was also like a little Nautilus toy and it was kind of like green and was like a little toy and then there was a game. So that was huge. Like that was really, really huge because again, for us, it seems like such commonplace, but back then it was something that had never happened before with any movie, like not just a Disney thing, but like ever. Um, 
And so that that's a huge marketing piece right there is merchandise. Um, and then also I did see randomly enough, and I think a lot of our fans are our fans, our <laughs> listeners have probably seen like the iconic like 20,000 leagues under the seas posters. Like that's not really anything new. Um, but I did see a Timex watch ad for 20,000 leagues under the sea. And we can put that picture in the show notes, but it was kind of just like, I mean, nothing crazy, but just like it was an ad for Timex and you know, the Nautilus was on there. And so I thought that was kind of cool. Um, but again, the biggest advertisement, that biggest piece of marketing was really just on that original Disney channel, mm-hmm. Disneyland show. Walt was just talking about this and it was an amazing production. Like at the time, nothing like this had ever been done. It was one of the most expensive movies in its time. Still, I feel like when we, when we add in inflation is an incredibly expensive movie. Um, yes. they built these water tanks. They filmed in the water. The scene with the squid was absolutely just like mind blowing for this time. So I think a lot of the marketing, it was great that that hour long commercial as they call it happened because it served the purpose of promoting the film while also giving people this really cool, like behind the scenes view. And I'm sorry, you guys always hear my vibration. I can't turn my phones off because I need them for work. So I'm so sorry. It's always me. It's never Adam or Kate. It's me. Who's the worst. (laughs) Your words. (laughs) <laughs> I'm taking ownership. Um, yeah. Well, I thought it would be good to jump into the, like the di- if if you're done with the movie aspect of it, I figured it'd be good to jump into the Disneyland walkthrough um, exhibit that they had in the park. Yeah, I was gonna say I think this is a perfect time as we jump from the talking movie. about the Disneyland, yeah, yeah, the merchandising, marketing. and then we talk about the Disneyland to go into you know when it was in the parks. So, um. Basically, a few weeks after Disneyland opened, um, Walt put in this 20,000 Leagues walkthrough exhibit um, in Tomorrowland in the building that would become um, Adventures Through Inner Space and eventually Star Tours. That's funny that the next episode is on that. Anyway, um, after Star Tours. But it opened on August 5th. Um, 1955, and it ended up being so popular with guests that it wouldn't close for another 11 years in August of 1966. Um, wow. But this walkthrough would take guests through eight rooms in the film, and it was able to include, you know, the props from the film, including the squid. The squid from the film was in one of the rooms. Um, the famous organ that Captain Nemo would play that was there. Um, You would visit like the wheelhouse, the salon, the viewing port and more. And the narration for the exhibit was done by the voice of Tony the Tiger, um, Thurl Ravenscroft. So Mm -hmm. um, pretty cool thing. But uh, one thing I did want to mention about this. So I did not know this until today when I did the research. I, I triple checked it. And it's definitely true, and y'all probably already know this, but um, in the Haunted Mansion, the organ in the ballroom scene is actually the organ from the film that Captain I Nemo did plays. see that. And is that yeah. the one? Is Okay, so is it talking about the one in Disneyland, I'm yes, assuming? Yes, the one in Disneyland. The one in Walt Disney World is a replica, but the one from the film is in Disneyland because basically when they took everything apart, um, a lot of the props were dismantled from the movie, but they held on to that organ and they went ahead and put it into the attraction three years later when it would open in 1969. I was thinking about all the dismantling when I was watching and I was like so sad because I was like I would do anything to have a piece of like yes any of this history it was so cool um really quick since we brought Thurl Ravenscroft I just wanted to talk about a few other things he's done because he is just amazing in Disney folklore he's the voice of Fritz in the Enchanted Tiki Room um he does a bunch of voices on Pirates of the Caribbean he's the lead singing bust on the Haunted Mansion he is the voice of Buff the Buffalo in Country Bear Jamboree and Kate. He does Big Al's laugh at the end of Blood (gasps) on the Saddle. And I know you are a huge fan of that laugh. That laugh. Every time. Blood on the saddle. (laughs) And and also it says. Blood on the ground. (laughs) Doing your job again, Adam. (laughs) 
And a big, um, <laughs> big puddle of down. Adam, you're supposed to keep talking. This is background ground. music. <laughs> no, this, is, this needs its own uh, part of this podcast. This is amazing. Um, also, he's the, the narrator on the Disneyland Railroad. He's the <gasps> first mate on the Mark Twain Riverboat. He's uh, singing bullfrogs on Splash Mountain. So he has done so much. And that, um, that was noted when I was doing the um, research. It said that he, he ended up having a big history with Disney voice stuff. And I knew he was the singing bus, but that was it. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I remembered. I knew his name was linked to Country Bear Jamboree, of course, because how yes. would I not know that? But I couldn't <laughs> remember um, what he had done. And I also knew he's Fritz because he just has that very deep, um, like, super super deep voice of one of the tiki birds and obviously buff and big owls laugh i love that well yeah so i i thought it was really cool that basically eight months after this film came out um they went ahead and set up this exhibit because if you guys can remember um from when we talked about disneyland before there was not really anything going on at tomorrowland and walt was really needing some experiences to kind of bulk up that area of the park so um I guess in 1966, when they started adding a little bit more stuff, it went ahead and made its way out to make room for adventures through inner space. But I think it's pretty cool that it was a part of um, Disneyland for 11 years. Also, fun fact, um, it was one of the things that uh, VP Richard Nixon went and experienced with his family the first time he visited Disneyland, um, only a few days after this. Richard Nixon has such a history at Disneyland. He really like, does. There are so many things mm-hmm. that have yeah. happened. And I don't, have we talked about this before? We haven't, but have I did. We, I mean, we're going to do, I think we should do an episode on his, his link to the Disney parks because when I did my Disney history moment of the day for, I believe it was the 10th, it was the 10th or the 11th. It was, the, that was the anniversary of him visiting Disneyland for the first time. And so I did a little bit of research about his connection with the, with Disneyland and eventually the Disney parks. And yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting story to say the least. Yeah. It'd be fun to do like a, a podcast. We, I, we could do one in general on just presidents and yeah. their links. I, I Especially Ronald Reagan. Presidents. Yeah. Right. But then um, didn't we say in River Country that like Jimmy Carter's daughter or something was one of the first yeah. people at River Country? That's what I'm saying. Like There's yes. all kinds of connections. So And then the Hall of Presidents, which I saw a video course, the other day that yeah. had a fact about the Hall of Presidents and it was going absolutely viral. And I know that it's wrong, but I uh, can't share why it's wrong. Oh, because man. I want to know the fact. Can you send me the video later and I won't say anything about it and I can try to figure out the fact myself? <laughs> yes, but it was wrong and I was like, oh, this is so annoying that it's wrong. But That is annoying. It was well, annoying and it was getting all these likes. Well, anyway, I thought it was all interesting because I... I knew that this episode was coming up and I was I was researching for that video and I saw that it said he specifically went and viewed the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea walkthrough exhibit. And in my head, I was like, OK, well, I'm going to be looking through that a little bit more for this episode. And here we are. Just me talking in circles. I would have walked through it. It looked really cool. Um, and so I I actually in the research was like, why is it not coming up with a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea ride? And then I realized that the ride at Disneyland was just submarines. It wasn't a yes. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea yeah, submarine ride. Yeah, so the weird thing about that is that even though it wasn't 20,000 Leagues themed, like apparently all of the scenes were basically the same. Like you saw the sea monster, you saw the sea serpent, you saw the mermaids, you saw like, apparently it was a very similar situation, but it was a different vehicle and you didn't have Captain Nemo narrating your experience and it wasn't named after the film. But I mean, I guess Adam experienced it so he can verify, but didn't it have scenes like that with a serpent and the sea monster attack, the sea squid attacking the the ship at the, I mean, the uh, submarine at the end and stuff. Yeah, I I, mean, I, I don't remember vividly what yeah. kind of creature was attacking it, but I know there's a, you know, the, if you guys have seen, there's a submarine lagoon at Disneyland that's now yes. the Nemo subs, but there's an outside part where you can, like, where guests who aren't on the attraction can see the subs moving, but then it goes mm-hmm. under a waterfall and into, like, the backstage oh, area. yeah. Yeah. And so somewhere in there towards the end is where, you know, the the sea monster or whatever it is attacks. But I can't remember 
what it was. Um, I believe the ride closed in like 94 or 96, somewhere in there. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I definitely went on it a bunch, but not, you know, I don't remember like the specifics. Well, when I was researching for the Magic Kingdom attraction, which we're about to get into, the notes I was finding was basically that the Disneyland submarine voyage attraction and then Magic Kingdom's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea colon submarine voyage were very similar in like the ride itself, but not like the vehicle. And obviously like Mm -hmm. the one in Magic Kingdom was like directly themed to 20,000 Leagues, but who knows someone who's experienced both or remembers experiencing Disneyland's feel free to give us your scoop on the DMS uh, for our Instagram. Cause I definitely didn't experience either. Yeah. At carousel project podcast, but I, I did, I thought it was interesting cause you and I talked about this a few weeks ago, Adam, I assumed that it was 20,000 leagues themed because the Walt Disney right. world one was, and you told me, no, it wasn't. So Yep, it was just a generalized sub, but then I, you know, I guess it did have a couple nods to the movie here and there. You know, the the subs did not look anything like the movie one. Which is so sad. I would have loved. But did you know yeah. that they wanted I heard that they wanted and I forget where I heard this that they wanted to like change and not have a submarine ride and they were like no, like those subs literally could last. Like they before they changed the ride over, they got the cars tested, like not you know, like mm. the submarines. Yeah. Because the ride was so old and it had been in water, you know? So they, yeah. they tested them. And apparently when they got them tested out, and I don't remember if this was like I know I like read this somewhere I watched in a documentary, but basically they were like, nah, like these subs are gonna last for like another seventy years. Like wow. For Disneyland you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then the Walt Disney World one, I mean, it's not an opening day attraction. It opened two weeks after the park um, in Magic Kingdom. And it was actually a very popular attraction for guests in Fantasyland. Um, It was obviously called 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, colon, Submarine Voyage. But due to the fact that it was just a low-capacity attraction, it could only have three submarines running at once. Apparently, the subs could only hold 40 people at a time. So those numbers were just way too low. Plus, the maintenance on the attraction was just too expensive. So um, it ended up closing in 1994 with um, a two-year period of just sitting there. People weren't sure if it was going to reopen, if it was under maintenance. And in 1996, they finally announced that it was a permanent closure. But yeah, it would take guests to the lost city of Atlantis. Um, They would see mermaids. They would see the squid. They would see a sea serpent. Um, And apparently there were um, like divers in the outfits from the movie that they would see on their journey. Um, So it's very sad that this attraction came to an end, in my opinion, so soon. It only lasted 23 years in the parks. I think that it closed because of our boy, Mikey Eisner, which is when I thought he was going to come up because in, in some of the research I was reading, it was like, you know, they really wanted to make room for things that were more popular and it wasn't very popular. And apparently this attraction took a lot of people to run and was costing a lot of money every day just to have enough people there to run it and and to maintain it because again I feel like anytime there's like a water attraction you know like it costs a lot more money and there were waterfalls and it was a big it it took up a lot of space in fantasy land well we can do a breakdown of the timeline you know uh Disneyland Paris opened in 92. This attraction closed in 94. I don't think that that's a coincidence at all because I we all know that the failure of Euro Disneyland led to a lot of budget cuts. And like you said, if it was expensive to maintain, it required a lot of cast members. It was low capacity. I could see Mikey saying, let's just let it sit and figure out what we want to do, which is terrible. And we hate that. Another L for Mikey, two episodes in a row. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean... I. I don't know why in my mind I'm forgetting that Mikey was CEO in 94 uh, when I'm thinking about this timeline. But yeah, that makes sense. He probably was the driving force behind it. I just think about the people that would ride the Skyway at that time and go over Fantasyland and just look over the wall and see Mm -hmm. (laughs) the attraction just chilling. And then it would become... Uh, the area would become, it was still blocked off, but they put the tritoned, um, little fountain thing in there and it was like Ariel's Grotto, like meet and greet. And I remember being a kid in the parks in those days and I didn't realize that there was an attraction 
back there that wasn't being used, you know, for basically 10 years before they would drain it in 2005 and make way for the Poo's, um, it was like Poo's play area or something. They, mm-hmm. they drained that area and like extended it out across from the Winnie the Pooh attraction to have like a little play area that was Pooh themed. And of course the Imagineers left a little nod to 20,000 leagues on the mm-hmm. tree. Um, and luckily the tree was moved in front of the attraction now that they've made that area into something else with new it's fantasy still land. there yes i mm-hmm. was i was gonna say when we go to the parks next week i want to go and look for all of yes. these easter eggs to Twenty Thousand yeah. leagues because there's quite a few um I but yeah that. it's still there it's right above the door right outside of the yes. attraction um there's a little nautilus car- carved in and most people know about the nautilus which That's attraction are you talking about winnie the pooh oh okay mm-hmm. so you're not talking about yet um because it was replaced by Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, then the Playful Poo area. You're talking about the Poo attraction. Well, they're the same thing. The Playful Poo area got moved when it got demolished to get um, Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. They moved the tree from the play area to, to in front okay. of Winnie the Pooh, okay. right Probably outside. So you could still find that Nautilus there. Um, I it's love just it. I been love moved it. across the, I guess, across the walkway. Um, and then we all know, I, well, most of us know, um, I'm sure, about the Nautilus that's carved into the rocks um, while you're waiting in the queue for the Little Mermaid attraction. I did not know. You didn't know about that? No. Oh, girl. Okay, well, we're going to go look for all of these next week. Seriously, I'm so excited. But one fun thing that I didn't know about that I found out about today was that apparently the Imagineers went and saved some water from the original um, 20,000 Leagues attraction when before it got um, demolished. And they went ahead and poured it into the new lagoon for um, the Little Mermaid attraction um, in 2012. So they held on to that water for 18 wow. years so they could, um, you know, add that into the new attraction, which is in like the same area. But here was some fun Easter eggs I did not know about that um, have to do with 20,000 Leagues in that new Fantasyland area. Right across from the Little Mermaid uh, attraction and meet and greet. You know where they have the King Triton um, statue. Yes, right yes, there. yes. It's like the little like D- it's a DVC. Yes, it's a DVC. Yeah. So yep. yeah, it's uh, it says H Goff, which stands for Harper Goff, and then also above it there is a weather vane that's shaped like the squid from Twenty Thousand Leagues. <gasps> Very cool. I think I saw that, but I didn't know that it was like that's so. Cool. Yeah. So I love that that's there, and then also you could say that the Triton figure is like a nod to the old fountain type figure that was over there by Ariel's Grotto and yeah. it's across the street from the new Ariel's Grotto um but I thought I thought that was fun because I I'd never put together the H Goff and I never noticed the weather vane because I never look up yeah. um so I love that they put all these little nods throughout the area but one thing that I thought was cool about Epcot is there were some nods to 20,000 leagues in the Living Seas um, before that got what? switched over to ne- Seas Nemo. with Nemo and Friends. All the good stuff gets switched over to Nemo. <laughs> so basically... A little orange cretin. <laughs> well, and that makes it even more ironic because Captain Nemo, Finding Nemo, I mean, they're still a little linked. Anyway, it's fine. Agreed. Captain Nemo was a daddy. I have to put it out there. Keep going. But he was much hotter than the animated fish. <laughs> in comparison I, to the animated fish, he is a daddy. In comparison to I, most I men, he was so, a daddy. He was, But also to a little orange animated fish. <laughs> in case anyone needed to know. So basically, if you visited... Um, the Living Seas attraction in Epcot, um, before it made its switch over to the Living the Seas with Nemo and Friends. Um, when you were walking into the attraction before you got on the Omnimover, um, there was kind of it was basically a little bit of a pre-show to um, pre-show area theme to like twenty thousand leagues of swords because they had a replica of the crew diver suit from the movie. It wasn't the same because like we talked about they got dismantled, but they did a replica that was created by um 
Tom Sherman. And then they also had an 11-foot Nautilus model near the suit. And this was a hero miniature that was used for filming, like, underwater scenes. Oh, that's so, so cool. So you could find those in in there. And then I also read somewhere, but I couldn't find it somewhere else. I forgot. Um, basically, when you got off of the attraction, there used to be a huge Nautilus hanging. I read somewhere that there was one hanging for a while. It's not there anymore. Oh, and I guess I should mention, when they did close down the Magic Kingdom attraction, they kept three of the subs. Um, one went in the back lot tour lot. Ain't there yes. no more. Ain't there no more. So we don't know what happened to that, but it was there for for a few for a decade or two. And then um two of the subs were sent to Castaway Key. Um and they were, you know, they were in the water for people to be able to kind of find when they were snorkeling and all that mm-hmm. um on the island. But apparently they sustained some hurricane um winds and stuff and they were eventually removed so i don't think they're there anymore but they were there Mm. for a while um so i'm wondering what they did with these since i've heard that apparently at least one of them will pop up at some of these like disney events out and about um where they show off some of the old ride vehicles and stuff apparently one has been seen there but they're not just anywhere people can go look at them anymore which is kind of sad yeah that does suck so, um, I thought we could talk about Discoveryland and Disneyland Paris, which yes, is a really cool Very concept. Very steampunky. Yeah, a really cool concept. Um, for those who don't know, um, in Disneyland Paris, they do not have a Tomorrowland. Instead, they have a Discoveryland, and the idea for this basically came from creating, like, a Jules Verne-themed-esque um land which like very steampunk yes steampunk very like um like i mean it's kind of the same as tomorrowland but not in the way that it's different like the jules verne the steampunk look but jules verne wrote about sci-fi like a long time ago Mm -hmm. so again as we've talked about in other episodes it's like that vision of tomorrow from yesterday if yes. that makes sense, like a vintage look at the future. So if you look at their version of um, Space Mountain, you'll notice that it's still the same dome shape, but it's like I got a steampunk, colorful copper look to it versus like a white, you know, yeah. spaceship or mm-hmm. I mean, a uh, Space Mountain. Wow. Uh, spaceship, spaceport look. And then um, right in front of their Space Mountain, you can see a Nautilus popping up out of the water, the um, the body of water they have right there. And this whole time I'm I am jealous. Yeah. So this whole time I thought that was just like a prop, like they just had it there because, you know, Jules Verne, whatever. But apparently there's a walkthrough attraction in Disneyland Paris. I'm going to butcher this because I don't know French, but from it's to me, it looks like it's called the mysteries of Nautilus, but in mm-hmm. French. So um, that, open, but in French. So less let lay mysteries do Nautilus. I don't know. I'm, I'm butchering yeah. it. So anyway, that, that was perfect pronunciation. Kate, a plus. Awesome. Okay, so this attraction opened on July 4th, 1994. And um, so you'll walk into Discovery Land and you pass up the Nautilus and you take a left and you walk around. So basically you go down this corridor and you're actually going into what feels like you're going into the Nautilus to go be able to walk through and experience the rooms. Now, where this is different from the Disneyland walkthrough, it's only six rooms instead of eight rooms. And they're all recreations. It's not original props for any of them. And I watched a walkthrough with the squid. The squid looks very different. So it's not original, but it, it's very cool that they would include this major nod to not only 20,000 Leagues, the, the Disney version, but also just Jules Verne in general, because this whole land was created around the idea of Jules Verne's writing and his science fiction and all of that. Um, but yeah, it's still open to this day. We looked it up. It's still open. So you can go still go and experience that. I wish I had done it. My friends Max and Maddie um, just went out to Disneyland Paris a couple weeks ago, and I should ask them if they went on this and or walked through it, and even if they have any pictures that we might be I able wish. to. Uh, I wish. I wish I could. Yeah, and then the last resort that has any sort of Twenty Thousand Leagues themed anything is um, Tokyo Disney Sea in two thousand one. Mm-hmm. A Twenty Thousand Leagues 
attraction opened and um while this is like a similar vibe of like the submarine and all that um it is a, a completely different storyline um but they the attraction does feature the nautilus on the outside again which i thought was fun i really think that that's like growing up if i would have been able to go to the parks or if i would have experienced disneyland paris yet in my life like seeing that nautilus popping out of the water like that i would have just been so excited you know to want to go experience whatever attraction it was i feel like mm-hmm. it looks so cool But yeah, so I mean, that's everything I had on like the Disney parks um, tie-ins other than the Trader Sam's drink that you already mentioned. Yes, I think that's a perfect way. I was going to say, I think that's everything we have. And I'm definitely going to add some really cool links in the show notes. Um, But that is the perfect way to end our show is that, yes, if you want to celebrate the Nautilus still in Walt Disney World, or I believe they have the same drink, I'm assuming, at the Disneyland um, version of Trader Sam's, um, you can get this big, cool, fun Nautilus less cup and drink a drink while you listen to our episode, episode. <laughs> the best day i think adam is fact checking yeah i think he is too because i know they have some different drinks they do like i know for example the outside area of trader sam's at walt disney world has a dole whip drink but the inside area doesn't have mm-hmm. the dole whip drink because they want to give people a reason to want to be outside yes there is a nautilus drink Woo-hoo. At both Disneyland okay. and uh, Disney World, and I also found the uh, recipe for it. So, ooh, maybe we can put that in the show notes. Yeah, Woo-hoo. that would be fun. Okay, so that's it. Thank you for another amazing show. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us. This is our little passion project for fun. And so we, you know, always joke. We can't believe we have even like one or two listeners. So (laughs) thank you so much for everyone who listens, especially if you listen, you know, every few weeks. If you're looking for us on social, you can find us on Instagram at the Carousel Project Podcast. And you can find all our other socials from there because, you know, quite frankly, it was a mess getting all those handles. A lot of people want to be the Carousel Project. So, <laughs> yeah, so they're a little different, but we we have we're covered. We covered all of them. So you can find us in some way on any of those. And as usual, if you liked this episode today or, you know, somebody who would have enjoyed this content, please share this episode or your favorite episode of the Carousel Project podcast with somebody. If everybody shares this passion project with one person each week, then we could have a really exciting audience and uh, continue to offer even more episodes for you guys and bonus things. So again, if you uh, enjoyed our episode and want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, a review with words, we would really appreciate that too. We've been really enjoying everybody's feedback on this new season. Makes us so happy. And we love you guys. Love you. Bye. Bye. Love you. Bye. Take care. (laughs) 